I love that that song was about leading the airing and reaching out to people. Tonight, we're going to have a sermon as was written about in the bulletin this morning. It comes about as the direct result of one member here trying to share the word with somebody else and... Um, I hope to offer this lesson tonight in a way that maybe they both will be able to access it, but hopefully it will help to serve others if you're ever caught in this particular situation. <laughs> Apparently the member is, is talking to a man or, or um, communicating with a man. This man who believes like so many others in our world today that despite the thousands of examples of conversion to Christ that we have in the book of Acts, which all feature the necessity of baptism, this individual believes that baptism is not essential to salvation. And the way this particular individual seems to want to back this up is this. That because Cornelius and his household received the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit, the moment they received the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues, they were saved at that exact moment. That's proof they were saved because they received a miraculous gift and started speaking in tongues. That was proof that they were saved prior to the baptism which comes in the following verses. Not the first time that I've necessarily heard that. But the question tonight is, is that true according to God? If it is true, then how does the context and the surrounding texts work to confirm it? And thirdly, if it is not true, then how and where would anybody get such an idea? These are the questions that tonight I hope to answer from the scriptures with this sermon, but unfortunately, no matter how biblically that it is addressed, unfortunately those who desire for whatever reason to believe something other than what God actually said will probably simply harden their hearts, not listen, cover their ears, gnash their teeth, and reject the truth. But tonight I have a hope. I have a hope and more that those who are truly and sincerely seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness, like I hope this gentleman is, I hope that those who are truly seeking will, will give it a listen and examine the scriptures to see if the things that I speak are true when they hear this on the internet. And if the things that I tell you tonight are true, then those folks are going to have to decide whether or not they love and trust God and His Word more than they love and trust themselves or anybody else. Let us begin. One of the simplest and most fail-safe ways to ensure that you fatally misinterpret the Scriptures, you want to absolutely guarantee that you're going to misinterpret the Scriptures, the way to do that is to separate either a verse or a series of verses from their immediate and larger context and then pull them out and use them to contradict all of the other verses in the Bible that talk about that same subject. For example, we often encounter this type of reasoning 
When it comes to John 3, let me just briefly go over this and then we'll get into our actual address of the subject at hand. We often see this in John 3. People want to take John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. They want to pluck that verse right out of its right out of its place in scripture, right out of its moorings, right out of the verses that surround it, right out of chapter 3, and they want to pull it way out like this, and they want to take it over here and try to plug it in to some man-made doctrine. Because you see, the overall context of John 3, if we're going to consider John 3.16, which is a beautiful verse, it's absolutely true, but if we're going to consider John 3.16, that God gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life, we've got to leave it in its proper context if we're going to get God's message. And this is its context. John 3. John 3.16 is right in the middle. But John 3 starts with John 3, 3 through 5, with Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. And Jesus explains to Nicodemus that if he wants to enter the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, he must be born again of the water and the Spirit. Okay? That's how chapter 3 begins. You must be born again of the water and the Spirit. He does not say, you must be born of the water physically, and then born of the Spirit spiritually. That's not what he says in John 3, 3 through 5. He says, you must be born again the second time. You must be born. Not your physical birth in water, but you must be born again. That second time includes both water and spirit. That's how the chapter begins. Then we get to John 3.16. And at the end of that chapter, we get to John 3 in verse 36, which says, in the New American Standard Version, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So, here's how we put that whole context of John 3 together. Watch closely. Jesus said, you must be born again of the water and the Spirit. John 3, 3 through 5. Moving through the chapter, Jesus says, or God says that if you believe in Jesus, you should not perish. Verse 16. Which is true. Because if you believe that he is truly the son of the living God, then you're going to obey him. That's what it says in verse 36. That's the way that chapter progresses. You must be born of the water and the spirit. You've got to believe in him. But if you believe in him, verse 16, you'll obey him. Verse 36. Well, how do you obey him? Because you believe in him, verse 16, how do you obey him, verse 36, to get into the kingdom? You must be born again of the water and the spirit. It all fits together. You can't pluck verse 16 out of the middle and say, well, baptism's got nothing to do with it. Baptism's got everything to do with it. You've got to be born again to the water and the Spirit. If you truly believe Him, you'll obey Him and do that. That's John 3. That's context. You see, we also see that in the book of Acts. With every example we have of conversion, we see baptism tied in there. Just about every example. You see, John 3.16 does not deny the essentiality of baptism to enter the kingdom. John 3.16 confirms it, even though it doesn't mention baptism. It confirms it in context. Because again, if you believe him, you're going to obey him. If you obey him, you're going to be born again to the water and the spirit to enter the kingdom. That's the way it works. The only way that John 3.16 denies baptism is if you pluck it out of its context... You pluck it out of its chapter, you pluck it out of that whole context of that chapter and try to plug it into some man-made doctrine that denies the authority of Jesus Christ. Do you not agree? 
that if you truly believe in Jesus as the Son of God, you're going to do what he says, right? You believe him, you're going to obey him. Verse 36. What did he say you got to do? He said you got to be born again of the water and the Spirit. But you see, the problem here is people want to pluck verse 16 and go a different route. And we see that same thing is true in the events of Acts 10 and 11. You see, here's the thing. Verse 11, I'm sorry, chapter 11 of Acts contains God's explanation of the events in Acts 10. It shows us why Acts 10 says what it says. And if we don't use Acts 11 and take God's definition and explanation and put it with chapter 10, we're never going to get it right. But let's take a look at the book of Acts when it comes to Cornelius and baptism and the miraculous gifts speaking in tongues and all of that as it leads up to this point with Cornelius. Let's start at the very beginning of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, we see in Acts chapter 1 that the promise of the miraculous gift or the promise of the power of the Holy Spirit was only given to the apostles. If we were to read Acts 1, 1 through 13, we would see that the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit was promised only to the apostles. God makes sure of that in verses 1 through 13 because he names each one of them by name. It could not be any clearer. Then we move on to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we see that it was only the apostles who actually received the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. How do we know that? Well, we know it because in verses 1 through 4 of Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit came and fell on their heads, if we back up to the last verse of chapter 1, we see it was just the apostles. It was the apostles who were together and received that miraculous gift. If we were to go down through verses 5 and following, we'd see that all of the people were amazed at what the apostles were doing. And we'd see Peter taking his stand with the eleven. It's only these twelve that are speaking in tongues and have this miraculous gift. The rest of the people didn't have the miraculous gift. They didn't. We also know that because of Acts 2 and verse 43 where it tells us that these miracles were being done through the apostles' hands and everybody else was amazed. Nobody else had the miraculous gift, just the apostles. Just the way God said in Acts 1. Church of Christ came into existence that day in Acts 2, and it began to grow on a daily basis. Acts 2 and verse 47. God added to their number daily. Who did God add to the church daily? Daily. The Lord himself added to the church daily those who gladly received or believed Peter's instruction about Jesus and thus repented and were baptized specifically for the forgiveness of their sins and received the non-miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 41. This continued day after day, according to verse 47. And the church grew. The Lord's church at this point continued to grow daily, on a daily basis. People were hearing the message, they were repenting of their sins, and they were being baptized specifically for the forgiveness of their sins on a daily basis. And the Lord was adding them to the church, just like in Acts 2.47. Matter of fact, they grew by the hundreds on a daily basis. Soon thereafter, within just a few days, the number of just the men alone 
had risen to 5,000 according to Acts 4 and verse 4. And they kept preaching. And people kept repenting and being baptized and receiving the non-miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit day after day. Acts chapter 5 and verse 12 confirms and says, And through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people. We have got to understand before we ever get to Cornelius. That it was only the apostles in the beginning that were given that miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. Nobody else was. It was given to the apostles. Everybody else was amazed that they had it. Matter of fact, Acts 5.12 goes on to confirm and it says, And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. Well... How were they added to the Lord? The same way they were added to the church on the very first day it existed in Acts 2 and verse 47. How were they added to the church that day? They were added to the church just like it says in Acts 2, 38 through 41. When they heard the message, they repented of their sins. They believed his message. They gladly received it by faith and they were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And received the non-miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. That's how the Lord added them to the church. That's how in Acts 5.12 they're being added to the Lord. This was happening daily. That's the key to this whole thing. It was happening day after day, week after week, month after month. The Bible tells us in Acts 5 and verse 42 that consistently, daily, in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And as they did that on a daily basis, week after week, the number of the disciples multiplied. Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. There's a storyline developing here. The years passed. The months passed. Then a few years. And as the years passed, the preaching of that same message, the teaching of that same message, the gladly receiving that same message, the gladly responding to that message because they believed the message continued as people were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins and to receive the non-miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. And Christ's one promised pre-denominational first century church continued to grow. By the time we get up into Acts chapter 7 and 8, there's a great persecution that has broken out against that church. In Acts 8 and verse 4, it says, Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Time has passed. And now, with this great persecution, there's church members and they're scattering. They're traveling. They're, they're running for their lives. And everywhere they're going, guess what they're doing? They're preaching the word. They're preaching that same message Peter preached on Pentecost. People are responding the same exact way. They're having their sins forgiven as they're baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They're receiving the non-miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. And they're continuing on from there. And they're being added at that moment by the Lord to his church. That's what the scripture says. Up in Acts chapter 8 and verses 5 through 18 that follow. We see that Philip went down to Samaria and preached the gospel. You know what happened? Is Philip ran down and preached the gospel in Samaria? Verse 12 tells us. Verse 12 shows us that people, when they believed the message, just like on the day of Pentecost, when they believed that message he was preaching, when they believed the message that they had to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, baptized in the name of Christ, people responded, both men and women. 
And they were added to the church. That's the way it worked. That's what the first century church, that's how it grew. But they hadn't received the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. Consider in Acts chapter 8 and verse 18, the apostles have to go down and lay hands on them in order for them to receive the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit because they haven't been receiving the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. Nobody has been except the apostles. The miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit had only come on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. It had only come on the apostles. And only the apostles could transfer it. This is key. If these people in Acts 8 had received the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit, if that was just a regular part of being baptized, was receiving the miraculous gift, then Peter and John never would have had to have come down from Jerusalem and transfer that miraculous gift to them. In Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26, we see others who were scattered because of the persecution. And as they went, just like Philip, they preached the same message of salvation through Jesus Christ. And guess what happened? A great number of people, Acts chapter 11, 19 through 26, a great number of people continued to believe the message, turn to the Lord, and be added to the Lord, just as it says in Acts eleven nineteen through 26. How were they added to the Lord? Just the same way they had been doing for years since the day of Pentecost, when the Lord added them to his son's church. Now, this has been going on for about a decade, by the time we get to Acts chapter 10. About 10 years or so has passed since the day of Pentecost and the same thing has been happening over and over and over and over and over and over and over. In Acts 9 and 10 we find the Apostle Peter in Joppa where God gives him a vision in chapter 10 verses 9 through 16. And the message of the vision as we all know was very simple. The purpose was very simple. The message, you can read it yourself, but the purpose was this. Peter, don't consider the Gentiles unclean any longer. I'm going to accept everybody. That's the message of that vision that he received. Well, immediately after he gets done with his vision, servants from the household of Cornelius, the Gentile, came to seek Peter. And when Peter arrived at the house of Cornelius, the Gentile, Peter proved that he, Peter, understood God's purpose for sending him into a Gentile's house. Read with me in Acts 10. Follow along in Acts 10, beginning at verse 24. Peter shows that he gets it. He understands the purpose of being sent to a Gentile's house. Acts 10, 24. The following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. And he said to them, Now watch this. This has got everything to do with Cornelius and the miraculous gift. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man, Peter says, to keep company with or go to one of another nation like Cornelius was. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Peter says, I get it now. You Gentiles, God's going to consider clean. That's why he sent me here. Peter gets it. Look at verses 34 and 5. 
of Acts 10. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Once again, Peter's saying, I get it now. The whole reason I'm here is because God's going to accept the Gentiles. He's going to show that the Gentiles and the Jews are all acceptable and on equal terms under the gospel. Peter gets it. Now, as Peter preaches that same pure first century gospel message to this Gentile, Gentile crowd in Cornelius' house, the same message that Peter had preached for the first time about 10 years before this to the Jewish crowd in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, like we have in Acts 2, look what happens as Peter's preaching the message in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell up all I can get this right. The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. See that? While Peter's preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on these Gentiles. Now some that you may encounter, like the gentleman that one of our members was in a discussion with, would like to have us all believe that the Gentile Cornelius, as well as his Gentile household, by virtue of their having received the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues the way we see it in that next verse, were at that exact, precise, pre-baptismal point saved. That's what they want us to believe. That because he re because they were speaking in tongues, that was proof they were saved. And that they didn't need baptism to be saved. Because they could speak in tongues. They had these miraculous gifts. And this gentleman would say, therefore, that water baptism has nothing whatsoever to do with salvation, and there's your proof. Is he right? According to God? Let's take a look at the text. Number one, in verse 44, or verse 45, where do you see the word saved? You don't. The word saved is not there. It does not say they were saved at that point. That word never occurs. But that's okay. Because not in every example of conversion does the specific word saved occur. So that's okay. But you know what the biggest problem is with this reasoning that saying that because they had this miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit at that moment, that means they were absolutely saved. You know what the biggest problem with that reasoning is? Here's what the biggest problem is. Being able to perform or exercise a miracle or a miraculous gift absolutely does not mean in every case that the one doing it is automatically saved. Do you know how many cases we have in the Bible of people doing miracles or miraculous gifts that it proves we're not saved? You see, when somebody says, this is absolute proof because they could do the miracles, they could speak in tongues, this is absolute proof. Hands down, automatic, undeniable, boom, right there. This proves baptism. You know what we need to say? What if I could show you multiple cases where somebody who could perform a miracle absolutely was not saved? Because that blows that whole reasoning apart. Let me give you some examples of people who could do miracles, but it certainly wasn't proof they were saved. Turn to me in your Bibles to Matthew 7. Matthew 7. Beginning at verse 21. 
In reading through verse 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied? Was it a miraculous gift to be able to prophesy? Was it? Yes, that's a miraculous gift. Prophecy. The gift of prophecy. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons. Is that a miraculous gift? To be able to cast out demons. Yes. These people could prophesy. They could do that miracle. They could drive out demons. They could do that miracle. And done many wonders in your name. If you look up the word wonder, you're going to get the idea from the Greek that that word also means miraculous. They could do three different kinds of miraculous things. They had done them. And guess what? They thought they, thought that meant they were saved. But guess what? Jesus says in the next verse, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, the fact that they could do three different kinds of miracles absolutely did not verify that they were automatically saved because Jesus said, I'm going to tell them, depart from me. Let me show you another example. And I hope you're taking notes. Mark 13, please turn there. Mark chapter 13, let's look at another one. The fact that somebody can do a miracle sign of wonder is not automatic proof that they are saved at that point. Mark 13, beginning at verse 21 and running through verse 23. Mark 13, 21 through 23 says, Jesus says, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, I have told you these things beforehand. Jesus said false Christs are going to arrive and they're going to be able to do miraculous signs and wonders. They're going to be able to. They will. But are they the real deal? Are they? No. They're deceivers. Finally, in 2 Thessalonians, if you'll turn there with me, please. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 9, reads as follows. Watch this. Boy, I'll tell you what. If the ability to do a sign or a wonder or speak in tongues or do miracles is proof that somebody is saved, somebody should have told God, because the Bible has got all kinds of places in it that don't say that. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. For this reason God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie and that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What is more important? The truth when the truth tells us what to do to be saved, is that more important? Or is it just this automatic blind saying, well, they could do miracles, so they're automatically saved. Which is more important? The truth. We could show several other examples. In Revelation 13, it shows us that the second beast performs great signs and deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs in verses 13 and 14 of Revelation 13. Revelation 16, 13 through 14 also talks about sign performing spirits of demons. 
And then Revelation 19.20 says, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and on and on. We've seen at least six examples that prove that just because some being can do a miracle, or a sign, or a wonder, does not mean they are saved. It can mean, in fact, just the opposite. So that claim cannot be made that that's an automatic guarantee. The bottom line of all of this is simply this. It is a complete rejection of God's word to base your entire salvation on one little piece of reasoning that says we don't have to be baptized to be saved because Cornelius and his household, the moment they could speak in tongues and perform this miracle, was saved. That is a total rejection of a number of scriptures. So what was the whole purpose of God sending the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit on Cornelius and his household? What was the whole purpose? If it wasn't to show he was saved at that point before baptism, and it wasn't, what was the point? God, what's the point? Well, here's the point. God was trying to prove to the Jewish converts, the Christianity, who were with Peter... The same thing that Peter had seen in a dream. And that's simply this. That the Gentiles are now on the same terms under the new covenant as the Jews. That's all. Look back with me in Acts 10.45 and you'll see this. Acts 10, verse 45. You'll see this. Look what it says. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. Kaboom! These Jewish converts to Christianity were amazed that just straight-up Gentiles were given the same gift. Wow! You mean, they're acceptable too? In fact, if we went on in chapter 11... We would see how Peter went back to the church in Jerusalem, Acts 11 and verse 2. And some of the Jews back there in Jerusalem, they basically said to Peter, How could you go and eat in a Gentile's house? How could you do that? And so Peter relates a story and he tells about the vision that he had and he tells about how he came to Cornelius' house and he, he talks about how as he's speaking, and you can read this in your own Bibles in Acts 11, 1 through 18, and he talks about how to the Jewish church, he said, this is what happened. While I was speaking, the Holy Spirit fell right on him. Notice that in Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 15. Peter reports to the church when he got back to Jerusalem, he said, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Underline, highlight, emboldened, at the beginning. This miraculous gift that fell on Cornelius had not been falling on people for the last ten years. This was not a normal occurrence. The only time the Holy Spirit had fallen upon anybody was on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 when it fell on the Jews. Peter makes that point. He says, Holy Spirit came on the Gentiles. Just exactly the same way it did us. He didn't say all through the past ten years of the thousands we baptized. He says, just like it happened to us all the way back at the beginning. Guess what God's trying to get across? The Gentiles 
are just as acceptable as the Jews because I poured my spirit out on them just like you because you Jews have to get the idea that you're both now on the same level under the new covenant. That is why the Holy Spirit came in miraculous form on Cornelius. It wasn't to prove he was saved. It was to prove what God had told Peter in a dream. What the Jewish converts to Christianity in Cornelius' house understood in Acts 10. And so that the church at Jerusalem, made up mostly of Jews, would understand it too. Look at what it says in verses, uh, chapter 11, verses 16 through 18. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent. They glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Hallelujah. They got it. Why did they get it? Because God, in his wisdom, did the same thing to the Gentile household that he did to the Jewish apostles on the day of Pentecost, saying we're all on the same level. That was not given to say he was saved. As a matter of fact, if Cornelius and his household were saved, at the pre-baptismal point that they received the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit and began speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 10, if they were saved at that automatic moment in verse 44, then why on earth did Peter command them to undergo water baptism in verses 47 and 8, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have just received the Holy Spirit as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Why on earth, if they were already saved, which the miraculous gifts does not prove, as we've seen in at least six verses, six texts, why command them to be baptized? I can tell you why Peter commanded them to be baptized. And you sitting here already know the answer, don't you? Because baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. It is to receive the non-miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. It is to be saved. Well, how do you know baptism is to save you? Because the Apostle Peter himself wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, well after this incident, well after the incident in Acts 2.38, the Apostle Peter, who had been baptizing these people, says in verse 21 of 1 Peter 3, baptism now saves you. Now, as we conclude the sermon, it leaves us with two things. We can either believe that Cornelius and his household were saved at the moment that they could do this miraculous tongue-speaking thing. If we do, we contradict at least six other texts that show that people that could do miraculous, beings that could do miraculous things were not saved. That's no proof of salvation. Or, we can believe the truth, the black and white word of God, especially that which Peter wrote when he wrote, Baptism doth now save you. And that's why he commanded water... For Cornelius' household, because even though they were speaking in tongues, they weren't saved yet because their sins were not forgiven. Period. The bottom line is, Peter came to Cornelius' house with the word which would save him.
That's why he came to give him the word that would save him. It was the word and whether or not he obeyed it. So, you know, when somebody says, baptism doesn't save you, Peter said it did. When somebody says or sends a text and says, well, don't listen to anybody ever tell you that baptism has anything to do with salvation. Does that mean we're not supposed to listen to God? Because God said it does. That's what we need to tell people. The lesson is yours tonight. I know most of you know this stuff, but again, I hope it will form a brief outline that may help some of you if you ever get caught in a situation where somebody says, well, this is what happened with Cornelius. Tonight, if there's anybody here who's not been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, there's no other way to be saved. There's no other baptism. There's no baptism for any other reason. This is the message that tens of thousands of people believed in the first century. This is the message Peter and Paul and the apostles preached. And it doesn't matter. I know you can't do miracles today, but even if you could, that doesn't mean you're saved. It just doesn't. We've seen that. The only way to be saved is to do what God said. Now, in order to be saved, you've got to be born again of the water and the Spirit. If you truly believe He's the Son of God, then you'll obey Him, and you'll be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, because that's what saves you. Is there anybody here tonight that would respond to that call? If so, please come to the front as we stand and sing.